You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 38, Synesthesia. If you see a letter, do you see a specific color? Most of us don't, but there is a small proportion of the population that does, and they would be considered synesthetes. Jim, can you tell us what exactly is synesthesia? Put very simply, it's a mixing of the senses. So somebody might see colors when they hear music or feel pointiness when they taste chicken. Um, But this definition isn't really great because the most common kind of synesthesia is seeing colors when looking at words or numbers. And words and numbers aren't really senses. So it's hard to come up with an exact definition, but it seems to be about consciously experiencing some kind of sensation in the presence of a sensation that's of a, like a fundamentally different kind. Now, you mentioned that um, uh, only a small fraction of the population has it. What is the, the prevalence of synesthesia? And is it heritable? Yeah, it's about one in 23. So, you know, it's not terribly small, but there's lots of different forms of synesthesia, as we'll discuss. And as to its heritability, it seems to be the case. It seems to run in families in that females are three times more likely to be a synesthete relative to males, which suggests that it's something uh, encoded on the uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA because it's female uh, inherited. And when men have it, their mothers almost always have it, which is cool. Lefties are more likely to have it. I'm left-handed. Makes me wonder, should I be probing? Maybe I have some form of synesthesia. Um, But uh, studies of monozygotic twins, so identical twins that share 100% of their DNA, do suggest that it's also epigenetic and not necessarily coded in the DNA. So that means that somehow some environmental event also does seem to unlock some of the, the genetic transcription. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it runs in families, but it's interesting the particular type of synesthesia doesn't necessarily. So, for example, everybody in the family might have it, but they'll have different kinds of synesthesia. Oh, right. Like some might have vision sound and some might have sound taste or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the most common type of synesthesia? It appears to be, as I mentioned in the intro, something to do with the colored letters or numbers is the most common form. So that's, you know, when you see sixes as pink uh, or eights as green. And this is called grapheme number synesthesia. And in a relatively older study, in a 2001 study, it accounted for about 67% of all cases of synesthesia. And the least common one is something known as word taste synesthesia, which is about only 2% of those that were included in this particular study. Word taste, that's like... Well, if you hear the word basketball, for example, and you might actually taste I don't know, waffles or something. It's <laughs> amazing. You imagine playing uh, basketball and you taste waffles the whole time. <laughs> Is that how it works? It has to have some kind of trigger, like either, you know, seeing a letter or an experience like a color. Um, But the causal direction isn't always clear. And one phenomenon that I want to mention is something known as the synesthesia and tip of the tongue moment. So, you you know, when you're trying to remember uh, like an actor's name or something or the name of a city and and you you say it's it's kind of like on the tip of your tongue, you know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in cases of word to taste synesthesia, an individual trying to remember a word, the tip of the tongue, will actually taste the word before it pops into their head. Isn't that cool? That is cool because... It's pre-conscious then, right? That's, that's what's mm. kind of cool about it is that before you're, you don't even have to consciously think about the word. You just mm. need to try to retrieve the word. And before you're even conscious of the word, 
you have the synesthesia. That's really neat. Yeah. And some people even experience colors when they're having strong emotions. And this is called a somatic synesthesia. So is synesthesia considered a mental illness? No. Most people who actually have it really almost likes having it, right? So most synesthetes would describe the experiences either just neutral or even pleasant. Um, the exception is, and I can't believe I remember this, but like 20, 30 years ago, I remember watching uh, Oprah and there was a woman on there who had synesthesia and she had what would be considered a lexical olfactory or gustatory synesthesia. So uh, lexical is um, sound of words or hearing certain words and then smell, taste synesthesia. And she would associate specific words with specific, almost uh, a taste sensation. And as you know, um, taste involves your, your sense of smell. And uh, in particular, she would almost taste like rotten garbage with specific words or so uh, specific sounds of words. And that was really, really distressing for her. Um, so you can imagine that, you know, things like that might be exceptional, but it's important to remember that for something to be considered a mental illness, it has to, to be bad. It has to have some kind of significant psychological distress or cause harm to self or others. Uh, and synesthesia isn't harmful and can even sometimes be helpful, uh, for things like memory. So it's better described as a condition rather than a disorder or even mm. a disease. Um, right. That said, there are some mental mental illnesses that make synesthesia or synesthetic experiences more likely. So, for example, in extreme uh, psychotic states, mania, autism, interestingly, and some mood disorders. I knew an artist, she had uh, sound color synesthesia, and she said that when she was painting, uh, she couldn't listen to certain kinds of music at the same time because the colors the music would trigger in her experience would interfere with the colors in the painting. <laughs> so she was painting like a blue painting. She couldn't listen to reggae or, or whatever it was. So she'd end up listening to music that triggered the colors that were complementary with the palette she was using. And I wonder if that actually helped. Like if she was listening to that music actually brought out her, her work. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think she, she it was probably inspiring because she would just see colors when she would just be listening to music, right? So she might get mm. artistic ideas when she wasn't even painting based on the sound she was hearing. That's cool. And, you know, I've, I, I actually looked into this because I, you know, I've heard of like some artists that experience that have synesthesia and have sort of this melding of like sound and color. And you can imagine that maybe our musicians or artists are more likely to have synesthesia. But in fact, the, there's some research that suggests that's not actually the case, that synesthetes are not necessarily overrepresented in the domains of, of certain art worlds. So, but some people will actually develop synesthesia. So they'll, you know, they're, that's like a, almost like a different form of, um, synesthesia. And then other people will experience synesthesia with the perception of time. So, yeah. And this isn't a good case of where like, it's not a sense, like time isn't like one of your five senses, right? <laughs> but there are yeah. lots of people who have a kind of synesthesia. They perceive time in like terms of 3D space. So they might feel like the days of the week are in a ring around them. And Wednesday has a particular direction uh, or that maybe the years into the past spiral outward and away from them. So they kind of have a natural physical uh, association with time. So how does that differ from people's perception? Like, you know how like everybody perceives time differently? Like if you imagine a calendar or a month or a week, like what pops into my mind's eye is like literally what you see on a calendar on a wall. Uh, like I, I see a week as kind of spanning into the distance. Like how are synesthesia's experiences different than just our mental representation of time. 
Well, most people's representation of time is related to space only in a very vague way. So they might think of time as progressing to the right or progressing in mm. front of them or behind them. Mm. But actually picturing like 1850 as a particular point in 3D space, that's, that's like another level, right? Mm -hmm. well, I mean, when I talk about like, oh, two weeks from now, you might not get a spontaneous image of a calendar and, you know, 14 blocks on a calendar, right? You might have to mm -hmm. like force yourself. How would I picture that, right? Um, for synesthetes, um, numbers and dates and, and these kind of things can can very, very viscerally um, evoke a certain kind of location. Hmm, that's cool. And there is like synesthesia's experience this with numbers more generally, right? This is like a mm -hmm. spatial sequence synesthesia. So in talking about its relation to association, um, you know, it is really different, I think. I mean, because there are TV and movies, you know, maybe people just associate dark colors with somber music. Mm. And if I were to listen to that music later, I might decide if asked the best color for it, and I might pick a dark color because of an association I have with it in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and everybody does these kind of things. But synesthesia is a little stronger than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think this possibility was one of the reasons it took scientists so long to really believe in it. But there are a couple of reasons to think it's not just an association. So first of all, even people with the same kind of synesthesia, say number color synesthesia, don't agree on which colors are associated with which numbers. You mean like I might associate six with blue and you might associate six with orange? Yeah. So we all grew up in relatively similar cultural environments, more or less, right? And it's hard to believe that for one person, their experience of the number six with orange would be really common, but for somebody else, mm -hmm. they would experience the number six really consistently with another color, right? So associations are built up through experience, right? Repeatedly pairing one thing with another thing. And we don't really have reliable experiences with numbers and colors. We, we, we experience them in all of the different colors, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not completely random. The letter Y is thought of as yellow and about 50% of synesthetes are is red and about 30%. So it says, you know, there's some meaning related pattern here, but J curiously is more often orange than brown and we don't know why. And the letters O and I are almost always white or black. And there's also an interesting pattern of synesthetes who grew up in the 1970s, and they tend to associate the same colors with letters because of a set of popular refrigerator magnets that were popular at that time. And I can actually <laughs> remember that, right? Like I grew up in the 70s, so I, I, I can visualize those, like those block 3D refrigerator magnets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I, you know, my dad had... Um day of the week in color synesthesia. Um, and I, I remember hearing this and I wrote down in my calendar, I was visiting home for Christmas and I put in my calendar for a year later what the colors were. And then a year later, um, I quizzed him on the colors and he just rattled them off exactly the same. <laughs> wow, it, you know, that's cool. It is hard to think of how like my dad would associate like Wednesday with Brown or whatever it is based on experience. Yeah, exactly. Days of the week are abstract. It's usually written about or spoken about without any color necessarily. And calendars are not typically color coded by the day of the week. Um, but the most convincing evidence comes from a really creative study by a scientist known as Ramachandran, V.S. Ramachandran, who uh, I had the great pleasure of seeing him speak at McGill when I was an undergraduate there. And he's a brilliant scientist, got lots of really cool videos about his work on freely available on YouTube if you uh, check it out mm. and we'll, we'll have some links to some of his studies on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website. Anyway, so Ramachandran, uh, he developed something called pop-out effects. Oh, right. 
So um, pop out, that's like when you can immediately detect like one apple in a big pile of oranges or something. That's right. Like it's, I remember teaching about this when I was teaching um, sensory processing back in the day. It's it's easy to spot an apple, right? If it's in a big pile of oranges, it's a different color. It's a, re- a slightly different shape. You know, it's more smooth edged. Um, and this is unconscious. It's involuntary and almost instantaneous. Like imagine in your mind's eye, like picking out an apple in a, in a big pile of oranges. But if you're looking at a huge grid of numbers and you're asked to find the number six, it's really challenging. Uh, you have to basically look through each number trying to find it. Like you're doing like a serial search it's caused. Called. Yeah, that's like what you have to do with Where's Waldo, books like that, right? Exactly. The where, Where's Waldo is hard because they make a lot of parts of the image look somewhat like, but not exactly like Waldo, right? So you've got stripes in some places. You've got that red uh, uh, hat, kind of the shape of it all throughout. Um, and you have to search around the, the image almost systematically uh, in order to kind of find him, right? He doesn't <laughs> pop out. It's probably why they, the Where's Apple series never took off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. So Ramachandran reasoned that if people really saw the number six as a distinct color, they might well get that pop-out effect. So he made these big grids of random numbers. But if you highlighted the sixes in the image, you'd see that they made a shape like a triangle. And for people like you and I, non-synesthetes, uh, you know, you'd have to look at it very carefully, find all the sixes and figure out that it formed a triangle. It takes a long time. You have to do this through that serial search process. But for people with number color synesthesia, the triangle just popped out because the number six is associated with a particular color. It looked to them like an orange triangle in a sea of random other colors. And they were so much faster at detecting the shape of the sixes that it convinced everybody that, hey, synesthesia is more than just simply the kind of connections we or associations we all have. And though this is still fairly controversial and many synesthetes don't necessarily have this pop-out effect, it was very persuasive in the field of psychology. Oh, that, that's so cool. Um, mm. But yeah, I want to point out it is not always sensory, though. Sometimes synesthesia is about just knowing that something's a color. Like you might, uh, might not perceptually see the color blue when you look at a number, but yet you have a strong sense that it is blue just in terms of meaning. Kind of like you can have a strong sense that apples are red without necessarily picturing an apple mm. or some people can. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And the variety is amazing. Like some people, you know, would see colored auras around other people depending on their mood. And I don't want to go too much into that. You know, we kind of have this image of the, somebody with a, a crystal and a magic ball talking about auras, but it, it very much can occur. People feel like certain individuals are exuding these colored auras. So we're talking here with my friend Ronnie, uh, who has something that might be synesthesia, uh, but it's a very interesting case. Ronnie, in your own words, why don't you tell me what your experience is like? Hi there. So um, it started when I was uh, young, around four or five years old. I had complained of um, the corners being painful to my eyes, according to my grandfather. It uh, was also concurrent with my diagnosis of keratoconus, which is a, a degenerative condition of the corneas. And the ophthalmologists were puzzled as to why I would have this aversion. Now, it's not to any and all corners. In fact, it's very specific to acute angles of uh, thin media. So uh, sheets of paper, cardboard, uh, signage. So so wait, so you're telling me that when you look at a piece of paper, it hurts? 
when I have a piece of paper on a flat surface, it's fine. But whenever I uh, have it loose or pointing towards my eyes in any fashion, it causes extreme discomfort to the point where um, if I were driving, for example, and the passenger uh, were, were uh, looking at a map and, and that corner of the map were pointing in my general direction, I would have to either um, look away to the left, which is not a good idea when driving, um, or just not have that happen. It's it's not pain. It's just I can't ignore this extreme urge to just not look. Okay, so it's not like you're being stabbed. It's not like an ache or a or a sharp pain. It's just a very aversive aversive stimulus or something. Extremely, and it actually triggers um, an aggression response. I I get angry very very quickly, and um, I scrunch my eyes up to block out the stimulus. So if I were to say to you, like, uh, if someone were to like take a a sharp pencil and put it like near my eye, pointed at it, I would feel very uncomfortable. Is it anything like that? No, I actually have had a corneal graft surgery. And as part of the uh, post-surgical follow-up, the surgeon would locally anesthetize my eye. And, and while awake, he would reach forward with a pin and uh, pluck the stitch from my eye. So that didn't bother me at all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so somebody unwrapping a map in a car is very uncomfortable, but like a pin in your eye you can take. Yep. That's amazing. And have you ever found anyone else who has a similar kind of feeling online or anything? I've come across a few people on Reddit. Some people also do have keratoconus, so there may be a loose correlation there. Um, there was, at some point, a support group on Facebook, and they gave it the acronym SEES, S-E-E-S, Sharp Edge Eye Syndrome, they called it. Hmm. Uh, they also have various other stimuli, such as furniture, windshield wipers, basically anything with a hard edge can can uh, trigger it in these other individuals. So I'm I'm quite lucky that my my own uh, trigger is so narrow. So how have, how has this affected your life, and 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 then how have you dealt had to deal with it? I have had to develop certain workarounds. I uh, used to be quite an avid reader, and I would cover the corners of the book I was reading with my hands. I fold over the corners. As soon as it becomes uh, an obtuse angle, it's fine. Um, so folding over the corners. Uh, funnily enough, if I have uh, loose papers in a binder, it's uncomfortable to read. However, if I put them in plastic pockets and soften the edges, it doesn't set me off at all. Same goes for lamination. So so when you when you fold over a corner like somebody might you know, dog, dog, dog ear a, a page in a book for a bookmark. There are still two angles. You're just creating two more angles that are a little bit less acute. Have you, but, but they don't bother, they bother you less or they don't bother you at all? They don't bother me at all. So like in Battlestar Galactica, when they uh, have all their printouts uh, in the remake, they're uh, mm. kind of octagons. Uh, right. That would be ideal for me. <laughs> I do all of my reading now through e-readers, and uh, it's definitely a lifesaver. That's so cool. Thank you, Ronnie. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Kim, you mentioned earlier about getting synesthesia. Can somebody actually get synesthesia? Yeah. So typically it is kind of a lifelong thing. So innate synesthesia is, is probably more common, but it can, it will often develop during childhood, right? And it's not like babies are born, um, well... It's possible they are born. I'll explain that in a minute. But it, it will develop during childhood when children start to engage with certain abstract concepts for the first time. And there's actually a, uh, a tool that's been developed to determine whether a synesthesia is either developmental or acquired, which is really cool. Yeah. And, and um, 
you know, like since the most common is grapheme, you don't even learn graphemes until you're a few years old, older, right? So you can't have not like a number of color synesthesia as soon as you're born because you don't even know what numbers are yet. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And also you can get synesthetic like experiences on drugs too, right? Yep. Uh, people can have these when experiences, no surprise, when you're on hallucinogens, so things like mushrooms, psilocybin, LSD. It can also be caused by a form of epilepsy known as temporal lobe epilepsy, which is the temporal lobe is right in behind your temples. That's why it's called the temporal lobe in behind your ears. And temporal lobe epilepsy uh, is marked by just random firing in the, the the circuits of the part of the brain, which is often accompanied by auras and uh, sometimes personality changes. So it, it's it's interesting that it's this specific form of epilepsy that you can uh, get synesthetic experiences. Also, strokes, tumors, and basically anything where you're you're messing around with brain function, right? Okay, so Kim, are you ready for the KFQ? That's what? Kim's favorite question. Oh my god! <laughs> what does neuroscience say about it? <laughs> I don't why i was like kf like i almost expected kentucky fried chicken like kentucky fried question but kim's <laughs> favorite question <laughs> what does neuroscience say about synesthesia kim? Uh, yes go crazy okay all right all right all right well there doesn't seem to be a, a single neural explanation of all of synesthesia no surprise right it is a it's 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 Curiously understudied um, and not as well explained as we'd like. But anyway, in a way, it shouldn't be too surprising because sound, color, numbers, and all things, these are processed in very different parts of the brain. So it makes sense that different kinds of synesthesia would have very different neural correlates, right? So some scientists try to account for that by suggesting something known as an incomplete pruning theory. Do you know, have you heard of the neural pruning or Darwinian pruning, Jim? Yeah, it's like you start out with too many neurons and pr development like gets rid of the ones you don't need, right? That's right. So as babies, we're kind of born with more neurons than we actually ever end up using. And over time, as we experience our sensory world and experience um, things that are in our environment more often than not, uh, we prune away um, connections and neurons that we aren't using, right? And so our sensory systems is a great example of that. Uh, you know, you've probably heard the babies when they're born, they kind of see like a blur. Hearing is actually pretty acute, but uh, their their visual senses takes a while to really fully uh, reckon. Um, and then as we're experiencing our environment, our brain starts to prune away these connections associated with, say, for example, vision and taste or vision and color. So what that means is that potentially early on when we're born, we have these connections between um, many of our sensory regions. And as we're uniquely experiencing visual information in the absence of auditory information or taste information, those things kind of get cut away, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that in synesthesia, that hasn't necessarily happened. So cells that are firing in response to say, for example, the shape of a number are also firing to the color. And this happens over time repeatedly. So if you see the number four and it's also you happen to see like that red refrigerator magnet and you've kind of burned that into your brain, uh, they become cells that fire together, wire together. So you will always have the experience of the number four at the same time as the experience of the, the color red. I see. It's, it's like we start off with our brains overconnected but not really specialized mm -hmm. and then over time we specialize but for some people for some senses doesn't leave that early state that's the theory yeah exactly yeah but for some kinds there's 
like, so this can't explain all forms of synesthesia. Um, so another theory is something called crosstalking. And this is essentially like perception of color and perception of letters and numbers happen in parts of the brain that are very close together. Uh, and so when there's more communication already naturally between these areas, it results in some kind of synesthesia. So areas for, for, like, for example, um, a key brain region for recognizing letters and numbers, the visual word form area lies adjacent to a, the color processing region in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. So they're neighbors, right? So it's possible that grapheme color synesthesia may arise from cross activation between these neighboring or adjacent brain regions. Other evidence comes from findings that adult synesthetes, synesthetes also show an excess of white matter connectivity. And white matter is the, the fibers that connect brain regions, right? Okay. So that's white matter versus gray matter, which is the cell bodies. And so uh, synesthetes have heightened white matter, uh, so connections between areas responsible for their synesthetic experiences. So that's really cool, right? So number mm -hmm. and color regions in, for example, the fusiform gyrus, which is uh, actually interestingly just kind of in a pocket in, in that temporal lobe uh, exist in graphene color synesthesia. But, you know, there's, like I said, it's kind of overstudied in some places, understudied in others. The studies are kind of all over the place. Some studies actually find no effect. Um, so once again, another theory has emerged and this is, <laughs> has to do with something known as the reduction of inhibition. So neural inhibition is... Yeah, so uh, opposite of excitation. So, uh, you know, when cells are excited, they're firing. When they're inhibited, it's it's uh, silenced, right? And a great way to think about the brain is that at any given time, most of our brain regions are inhibited. And the role of the, when we engage with our environment, what that does is it releases certain areas from inhibition, right? So mm -hmm. most of the time we're not walking, but then we look up and we see uh, somebody that we want to walk to towards that we release the motor areas uh, of our brain from inhibition and then we walk towards that individual, right? So uh, that's a that's a quick and dirty way of thinking about neural inhibition. So normally excitation and inhibition to some extent are balanced um, and some say that when inhibition is lessened, synesthesia can result. So this disinhibited feedback theory proposes that everyone possesses the potential to experience synesthesia if the balance of activity across the senses has somehow been altered. Okay, so like um, sensory things would run rampant if the brain wasn't inhibiting anything. Right, and that's, um, it's a little strongly put, but that's basically the idea. So Think about drug experiences, right? We know that certain drugs, they disinhibit the brain. So maybe is that potentially the mechanism behind mm. these drug-induced uh, synesthetic episodes, right? In one study, in fact, they found that uh, they took a bunch of individuals that were non-synesthetes, and this was actually run by a scientist in Michigan who, who is a synesthete himself, so he's really interested and curious to understand the neural basis of synesthesia. Anyway, he visually deprived them, so he put them in a dark room for about five minutes, right? So, like, you enter this sort of sensory-deprived state, and then what he did was he played a tone, and he varied um, the amplitude of the tone, so how loud or how soft it was. And he asked uh, uh, participants um, to describe later whether this 
playing of a tone evoked visual sensations. And lo and behold, it did do that in about half the participants. And it's really cool if you look at the paper, he's got in it like the sketches of what certain people were experiencing. And it's really wild. They see like visual fireworks or specific shapes. And so the interpretation of this is that the authors suggest that this is evident for that sort of latent synesthesia. When you kind of uh, release the brain from inhibition, you can evoke this synesthetic states. Hmm, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about mixing, you know, I earlier said mixing of the senses was like the rough and ready way to look at it. Um, but one way that it that definition doesn't work is that sometimes there are cases where it's the meaning of what you're looking at that causes synesthesia and not just it's like what it looks like. Oh, like when you hear the word six and has the same meaning as when we see the word six or the number six. Right, right. So the the, the concept of six can mm. be triggered by hearing it, by reading it, uh, by thinking about it. Um, and those are all, in some sense, different sensory ways of representing the same number, right? Mm. You can experience the number six written, spoken, but it's the meaning that triggers the synesthesia, right? Oh, wow. Um, and so to test like whether, like uh, even more extreme, they had some uh, letter color synesthetes. That's a form of grapheme color synesthesia. They learned like a code where new symbols would stand for letters of the alphabet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And these new symbols inherited the colors of the letters that they represented. So if you saw orange when you saw the letter P, uh, when you learned this new symbol meant P, it would turn orange too, <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. It reminds me of another study where um, they're looking at people who had pitch color synesthesia. So uh, when they hear a specific musical note, for example, they'd associate it with a particular color, right? So C C sharp is always um, green. Uh, And what they found was the same note represented in two different ways. So for those of you that are musical, you know that F sharp is essentially the same thing as a G flat, right? Um, And that elicited the same color experience. And this, I think, um, is explained as idea synesthesia, as I don't know how to pronounce that, ideasthesia. I, yeah. <laughs> ideasthesia. Yeah. It, like you said, which suggests the meaning of the thing is associated with some kind of sensory perception, which is yet a whole other theory. Right. And as you said, there are many, many kinds of synesthesia. Mm-hmm. I think there's about 80 that's been discovered so oh far. <laughs> And it might be that all of these theories and more are right for certain kinds of synesthesia, right? And we may not be able to find that magical overarching theory of synesthesia. It may well be that other, right. each of these are, are are relevant depending on the kind of synesthesia. Right. Uh, you mentioned earlier that synesthesia can help with memory. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how that works. People with synesthesia, they have what you might think of as built-in associations for what are abstract concepts for the rest of us. So, um, you know how you might use a mnemonic device to memorize something like Roy G. Biv to remember the colors in the rainbow? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to like remember Roy G. Biv. You have to, you know, but synesthetes, they have a strong sensory, often have strong sensory associations effortlessly. Um, so they can build um, memory associations really easily. Okay. So for people who see numbers in terms of like 3D space or who un- interpret uh, it that way. Sometimes you give them math problems. They can just see the answer <laughs> Wow! <laughs> without having to like go through math, you know? Don't uh, we wish. Some people with time-space synesthesia are better at remembering dates of things because they can easily associate events with the location in space. So 
you know, just like if you, it's easy to remember where things are often, mm. right? Like you mm. remember where your keys are, this, you know, say, oh, I remember I last saw it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, you tell somebody a date or a time, if they immediately, automatically, intuitively associate that with a space, they can remember that date a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You just read it off from their synesthetic experience. But the rest of us have to work hard at it. <laughs> do people actually work hard at it? Well, I do. Uh, so I'm I'm very bad at remembering numbers in general. So um, and and but it's it's most embarrassing with birthdays, right? So um, I associate uh, months with rooms in a house I once lived in, and then I imagine people whose birthdays are in that month in those rooms. So like I can remember what month my sister-in-law's birthday is in because when I imagine that room, I'm picturing her there with her daughter who also has a birthday that same month. <laughs> wow, that's like the memory palace. It's it is a memory palace, yeah. yeah so I have a yeah. I have a, a house that has like twelve locations, and I made a loop through oh. the house, oh and God, uh, it's January, February, March, and I just picture all the important dates of that month, um, those times, and I also picture them doing something that associates, w- which is a hard earned memory for the day of the the day too. Wow. So like that that's that's a little going far beyond this, but that, yeah. that, that is only you, Jim. Super hard earned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had to make up these associations, and if I don't rehearse them, I'll forget them. So I have to like rehearse. Sometimes I'm lying in bed at night, I'll just go through and try to remember everybody's birthday based on what I can see in the memory palace. But if I don't do it for months, um, you know, they'll go away. But synesthetes don't forget the associations, so they don't need to rehearse them or put in any effort at all. Well, here's hoping that everyone tuning in is experiencing happy rainbow colors or the odor of a fresh-cooked donut as they listen to the melodiousness of our voices. I think my voice evokes peanut butter. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) mine is marshmallows. (laughs) Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Funded in part by a Carleton SSHRC Knowledge Mobilization Grant and made possible by the evolution of our oversized primate brains, without which podcasting would not be possible. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.